If you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll continue. I'm going to read this passage again that we've been reading uh, over the past few weeks and continue our series in the path to glory. Jesus had a specific trajectory that he was on from the time he was born, and that trajectory was taking him to this end that we're talking about here that is codified, if you will, in this creed that we see in 1 Timothy. This was the goal of his life, the purpose for which he was born. And so it is extremely important. And uh, let's read it, uh, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit about it this morning. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.14 I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is the word of the Lord. You know, in his commentary, Matthew Henry asks this question. Matthew Henry is the, the Puritan commentator. Many of you have his commentary. Uh, wonderful uh, addition to anyone's library. But in his commentary, he asks this question, what is the mystery of godliness? The word godliness in Greek means, what is the mystery of our devotion, of our passion, of our faith? What is the content of that faith, that mystery. Why do we worship this King? We don't just admire Him. We don't just add Him to our life. He becomes something extraordinary to us. Our whole life orbits around Him like the planets around the sun. And so, what is the mystery of godliness? And Matthew Henry, in his typical way, he says, the mystery of godliness, well, it is Christ. It is Christ. That's the mystery of godliness. It's Christ. He is the central focus of our faith. What He did and who He was is central to everything we think and do, how we act, what we believe about the world around us. Everything. Politics, religion, work, family, Career, whatever you, whatever you want to name, our recreation, our pleasures, all of those things must revolve and rotate around the reality of godliness in Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done for us. And we've been looking at this path to glory and it's contained in part in these six articles that we're going through week by week. He was manifest in the flesh. We're talking, we talked about His incarnation vindicated by the Spirit. We talked last week or a week or so ago about Him being justified, vindicated by the Spirit. And today we're going to talk about this little part in here, seen by angels. And it's so easy to just kind of jump over that and say, well, you know, isn't that nice? The angels got to see Him. What does that mean? He was seen by angels. Well, listen again. I'm going to continue. Matthew Henry wrote this in his commentary. Really something. They worshipped Him. They attended His incarnation, His temptation, His agony, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. This is much to His honor. 
and shows what a mighty interest he had in the upper world that angels ministered to him. For he is the Lord of the angels. He is the Lord of the angels. So let's talk about what it means. What does seen by the angels mean? What, what is all that about? And the way we're going to do this is, is uh, three things. Where, here's your outline, where is our battle? Where exactly is our battle? What, what are our resources? Where's our battle and what are our resources? And finally, who is our king? As we sang earlier, the king of glory uh, who comes in. Who is our king? You know, king's not somebody you elect. We are elect. Right? Yes? We're elect. God elects us. We don't elect Him. So who is your king? The king is your sovereign. You owe Him every breath of life. So when we say, who is our king? That's what we're going to talk about. So first of all, where is our battle? You know, a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, in, in discussing the move to our new church and all of that, uh, we re-examined uh, the passage in Ephesians 6 about wrestling with, uh, with not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual powers, heavenly uh, powers that are there. So where is our battle? Paul makes it clear that we wrestle not, wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what Paul is saying, listen to me folks, what Paul is saying is that ultimately behind all of the evil in this world, in people, in politics, in religion, in terror, in warfare, in your husband, in your wife, in your children, all the evil that you see in this world, ultimately, behind it is a spiritual force that has been exerted and let loose in this world and it is influencing everything around us. And Paul is trying to get our minds around the idea that we just don't live in this tiny little self-contained world that we can somehow control and manage. That there are things at work that are unmanageable and uncontrollable outside of God's sovereign power. Authorities, rulers, powers, spiritual darkness. He's trying to get our minds away from tearing into one another, tearing into institutions and finding fault simply and ultimately in them and of themselves. But the danger is this, and listen carefully because this is so enlightening. The danger for us as Christians is that we tend to go too far on one end or the other of the spectrum. Now, I don't know all of your backgrounds. I know some of your backgrounds. Some of you come from very traditional churches and you made a move at some point maybe into a really wild church, you know, where people are bouncing off the walls and swinging from chandeliers. We don't have any in here, but uh, thankfully, of course, Presbyterians can't swing. Do, Do you know how Presbyterians dance? Like this. <laughs> they stomp their foot and shake their finger. Now, I don't know what your tradition was, but whatever it was, we have a tendency to obsess. We, we go one way or the other when it comes to spiritual 
warfare. Demons and Satan. We go one way or the other. We talked about this back in the Ephesians series. We obsess over human power. In other words, we ignore the spiritual element and we focus simply on human power. And so when it comes to politics, we say things like, well, if we just elect and then you fill in the blank. If we just elect you know, your favorite person. If we just get the right people on the Supreme Court. If we just do this. And so, so people, you'll know if this is you because you get all wrapped around the axle every time you see some, something pop up on Twitter or your Facebook feed or something, your stomach goes into a knot because, oh my God, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to our great country? What's going to happen to the world if we have this leader, that leader, him, her, it, whatever? And we start to panic over politics. And if we could just get this, this is something you're not you're not paying any attention to the the other side of the universe, the other world, the spiritual world. We're just thinking about this world right now. Or racism. If we just pass enough anti-discrimination laws, if we just criminalize hate speech, if we just all get along, if we become colorblind. You know, you can get colorblind if you want to now, but when you get to heaven, we're all going to be the same color. That was funny. (laughs) We're all going to be the same color. We are now. We're not all going to become some middle shade of brown. Are you with me? I heard a preacher say that. Oh, when we get to heaven, we're all going to speak Hebrew and we're going to be a middle shade of brown. And I wanted to say, you racist, you. You're going to be in heaven or in the new creation, wherever, and you're going to be the color you are now. And you're going to praise God in your own language. The book of Revelation is very clear. We're going to, from every tribe and tongue and nation, we're going to be praising God in a cacophony of languages. There's actually going to be people in heaven who are going to dance. Now, we won't. We will be very carefully over in a corner going like this. <laughs> But there are going to be people up there shouting and dancing and they're going to be doing all kinds of crazy stuff because we are going to worship Him with every ounce of our being. But He wants you to be you. So we can't fix racism in these ways. Poverty. Well, you know, depending on what... I don't know. Most of you here are Republicans. I know there's probably not too many Bernie Sanders out here. But there's a spectrum. And depending on where you are, the way you were brought up, the way you were raised, the answer to poverty is either work hard, right? Pull yourself up by the bootstrap. You can be anything you want except an NBA uh, professional. No one in this room can play for the NBA. So you have to start qualifying all of these things, right? We, we say, we overpromise to our kids, oh, you can be anything you want. Not necessarily. Or we go the other way and we say, you know, it's not fair that some people have too much, so I'm going to take what they have and give it to this one over here. And you all understand, I hope you understand, both are wrong. Can somebody say amen? Please. I'm getting very insecure up here this morning. I thought I'd be really secure on Palm Sunday, but I'm very insecure. Both are wrong. Both are wrong. One can lead to exploitation and the other can lead to downright robbery. Yes, but they're both wrong. There's a right way and you find it in the Bible and it's not on that continuum. It's somewhere else. It's a whole other radical thing we don't have time to talk about today. Or we can, you know, 
let's take the last example, justice and injustice. Okay, what we need is more laws. We need more people to have guns. We need more people to obey. We need to raise our children. You know, we can go on and on and on in all these different ways. Here's what we need to do. And all those things may be good. Not saying that they're not good. But what I'm saying is that you can't ignore the spiritual element behind them and why the fact that Jesus was seen by the angels is so important. Or you can, depending on your tradition, you can ignore the demonic influence or you can overemphasize the demonic influence. And if you ignore the, the demonic influence, you can be like a lot of us, you know, kind of cerebral types, the reformed types, the theological types. We like to sort of talk about, you know, spiritual things in an abstract way. And, uh, but then you have another whole group of Christians, in fact, perhaps the majority of Christians today, that the, the devil is the biggest thing on the planet, right? And, and depending on your tradition, you know, the devil's behind every doorknob and people are casting out the devil and rebuking the devil. Never mind that every reference to Satan and his demons you can probably count on your fingers in the whole Bible. And people write whole big thick books about the devil and his demons and there isn't that much in the whole Bible about the devil and his demons. On the other hand, there are dozens and dozens and dozens Dozens of references to the angelic host of God. So C.S. Lewis famously says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. Now, this comes from the screw tape letters, and if you haven't read it, I would very strongly suggest you get a copy and make it part of your summer reading. Screw tape letters are great to read over the summer because it's kind of it's fun and it's also a little depressing. Um, and everybody needs to come down from their summer high. We don't want you having too much fun over the summer. <laughs> but screw, screw Tape Letters, wonderful read over the summer. It's light, it's fun, and at the same time, very serious. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And hail a materialist, somebody who doesn't believe in the devils, or a magician, one who really believes in the devils, with the same delight. Don't you love C.S. Lewis? Saying, the devils love it if you don't believe in them, and they love it if you're obsessed by them. What they don't like is if you go to your Bible and actually read what's there. That they don't like. So seen by angels. What does this mean to us that he was seen by angels? It means that as Christians, we are to take deadly serious that other world. It's real. At the same time, we're not to be obsessed by it or frightened by it. You probably heard the story. This is an old story about the devil that went to visit the church, this, this little country church. And he went inside the church on Sunday morning with all the people there and he put on his, his most scariest costume with horns and a tail and pitchfork and he goes, you know, he scares everybody half to death and people are jumping out through the stained glass windows and screaming and yelling and the, the pastor is up here, he was like this, he didn't have a cool robe like mine but he was up there and he's holding on for dear life, oh my gosh, you know, like this. And everybody jumped out of it, ran for their lives. And finally he came up to the pastor and he's said, you know, aren't you afraid of me? And the pastor says, yes, I'm scared. And then the devil goes, 
like this, and the pastor jumps out the window. And the devil turns, great, I, I whipped these Christians. And he turns around, there's this little old man sitting in the front row. And the devil went up and went, aren't you afraid of me? And the guy says, no, I've been married to your sister my whole life. Oh my God, I love that joke. That's old, I'm surprised you haven't heard it. All right. So, all right. That, what are our resources? What are, where's the battle? The battle is a spiritual battle. And this should relieve you. Be, be, be serious about it, but don't obsess about it. And when, when trouble is, when you're fighting for your marriage, when you're fighting for the lives of your children, when they've gone off the rails, and I know what that's like, and my sons, if they were here, would tell you, I know what it's like to watch your children go off the rails. And I know what it's like to have a marriage that's going down the tubes. Marty V and I could tell you stories, make your hair stand up, about our marriage. I know what it's like to be in a business where you're working 80, 90 hours a week and just can't seem to get ahead. I had one for 20 years. I know what it's like to be part of a family where everybody's dysfunctional. Most of them are here this morning. (laughs) No. You know, what, you know what it's like and you're fighting with all your might to, to, to save something and we tend to start thinking the people are our problem and they're not. There are, they are, but there are spiritual forces and you've got to know and have a mature view of that world. Not obsess over it, but not ignore it. And to know that the angels are there and are seeing it. They saw their master their Lord. So what are our resources? Very quickly, let me give them to you very fast. The armor of God. The weapons of our warfare. We talked about this weeks ago and I can't go into it, but this armor, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the, they, are, they are there for us so that we can wage war against this. The strongholds, the lofty opinions, the arguments. Not to tear people's lives apart with your Bible, but rather to go against the wrong thinking and have at least spent enough time in your Bible and in your life, at least given enough of your effort so that you can have a good answer to give when somebody raises or poses a question or an objection. I was listening, watching a YouTube, and y'all can go look for it. It's fascinating. Uh, how many of you know Ravi Zacharias? You know who Ravi is? I, I got to meet him. I had the privilege of meeting Ravi at a Ligonier conference and saying hello, and he signed a couple of my books. Wonderful man. Ravi's world-famous apologist who defends the faith. And he was on a campus recently, a major university, and giving one of his typical uh, forums where he gives a a talk, and most of the time it's on objective truth and morality, and he's trying to tell the students there is such a thing as objective truth and morality. And, And of course, you know, today the relativism is all the rage and has been for decades now, that truth is just relative. Whatever you want to believe, you can believe. And and whatever was true for you doesn't even mean it's true for me. And it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And so there's no such thing as objective truth. And then at the end of the forum, Ravi sits down, and, and they have open mics, and the students can come up to their mic. And one student, intelligent guy, I guess, I don't know, came up there, and he gets the microphone, and he starts asking questions. The first thing he said was, how dare you Christian? How could you Christians possibly insist that there's such a thing as objective truth? 
How can you say that? Who are you to tell us what's true? How can you say that there's objective morality, that there's right and wrong? How, how do you do that? How can you say that? And he talked and he talked and he talked. He had this long list and he's talking, talking. And Ravi and the other guys on the panel are sitting there and they're kind of you know, listening. And this guy never ended. Finally, he stops and he says, okay. And Ravi stood up and he just walked to the end of the podium and he says, do you lock your doors at night? And the guy blinked a couple times. And then he kind of smiled, and then you could hear chuckling around the audience, and then finally people started to get it, you know? Kind of like you all right now. <laughs> Do you lock your doors at night? And er finally everybody burst into laughter because it was so patently obvious. And Ravi said, you can sit down. With one question... He destroyed this guy's entire argument against objective truth. This is what I'm talking about, folks. We have to equip ourselves so that we know the right questions to ask. How many questions are you supposed to ask, by the way, before you give somebody an answer? Ten. See, Scott knows because we've talked about this to no end. You should ask at least ten questions before you ever give an answer. And after you give them one answer... Don't talk for 45 minutes and show people all your brilliance. Give them your answer and then ask 10 more questions. And after a while, you will have opened up their presuppositions to the point that they will receive your answer and hear what you have to say. Do you lock your doors at night? Yes, I do. Then you believe in objective truth that somebody may come and steal and you believe in moral truth because stealing is wrong. Do you see the brilliance in that? And this is what our resources are. Our resources are that they're not guilt. They're not shame, shaming people and guilting people into being Christians. No, it's giving good answers to the questions that real people have. I have a lot of questions and I go to my Bible and I go to good teachers like Ravi or R.C. or Sinclair Ferguson or any number of great people and get the answers you need. Those are our resources. There's also prayer. Paul mentions that in his, in his uh, Ephesians 6, that along with prayer and along with the other means of grace, the means of grace in our tradition, we call them uh, a prayer, the Bible, the sacraments, the preaching of the Word, the beautiful music, the singing of songs, the communion of the saints coming to church. It shocks me how people will take vows in the church. Next week, we're going to receive new members in our church, and they will take solemn vows, pledging themselves, vowing before Almighty God that they will, that they will come to church and serve in this church. And after a few months, eh, I don't want to go anymore, and they quit. Now, that should shock you, but people do it all the time. Prayer. And the means of grace, the church, the communion, the preaching of the Word, all these are what we call means of grace. Those are your resources. But then there's a third one. And Paul specifically, I think he lists this in his list of these things are, that are the path to glory seen by angels. He invokes the angelic reality into the creed. And he could have listed any number of important doctrines and he chooses angels. Why? 
Because the Bible says that angels, listen to me folks, are ministering spirits, flames of fire. These are powerful beings. And it says they have been dispatched. They have been sent forth for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. There are angels that have been sent forth to minister for and on your behalf. You're not supposed to pray to them. You're not even supposed to be looking for them necessarily. But you must be aware that your life from the time you're born until you die, and even after you die, the Bible has said the angels will gather you up and carry you in their wings to the presence of God Himself. Hallelujah! I'm the only Pentecostal in this room today. All right. Look, they're going to they're there when you're born. You know, he gives you a guardian angel, probably more than one. They watch over your life, your whole life long, and when you die, they're there to scoop you up so you never see the inside of a grave, and they carry you up to God and set you before God, and everybody's hooting and hollering, "Hallelujah, there you are in the presence of God, escorted by the angelic host." What power is that? What glory is that? What reassurance is that to know that every step you take, that there is an army, a host around, ready to care for you? Listen to Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. Angels are the unseen attendants of the children of God. They carry us in their hands. They keep us from calamity. Loyalty to their Lord leads them to take a deep interest in the children of His love. If our eyes could be opened, we would see horses and chariots of fire surrounding the servants of the Lord. For we have come to an innumerable company of angels who are watchers and protectors of God's family. How well we are defended since all the 20,000 chariots of God are armed for our deliverance. To whom do we owe this all? The Lord Jesus, who must forever be dear to us. For through Him we are made to sit in heavenly places far above principalities and powers. It is He who camps around them that fear Him. He whose foot is on the neck of the serpent. So don't overemphasize the angelic host, but at the same time, don't, unfer- don't underestimate them. They're there, carrying us, protecting us. God has dispatched them for the heirs of salvation. That's you and me. And why? Why? Because He's the King. The King of the angels. So who's your King? Let's finish with this. Listen to Hebrews again. When He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let all the angels worship Him. But of the angels, He says, He makes the angels winds, His ministers, flames of fire. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of Your kingdom is the scepter of righteousness. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Do you see the exalted position that Jesus had? His entire life 
was punctuated with the appearance of angels at his birth the host of God descend. Don't, it was not a choir. It was a host. The word for host meant an army showed up with chariots and horses and swords of flaming fire to accompany the birth of their king to challenge the serpent to say to the Goliath, off with your head. They came to attend the birth of their great king. Jesus went into the wilderness to combat Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. No food, no drink. And the angels came while he was in the wilderness to minister to him and carry him through. In his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, while he was on his knees and his, feet, his body was being crushed by the weight of what lay before him and the capillaries under his skin were literally bursting and the blood blood mixing with great drops of sweat so that it seemed as though he were sweating great drops of blood. It says the angels came and ministered to him. At his arrest, Jesus calmed his disciples down and said, don't you think I could call 12 legions of angels? You could almost see them on the borders of heaven with their horses raging to come and save him. And they didn't come. At his resurrection... The angels appeared and rolled back the stone, not so He could get out, but so you and I could go in. At His ascension, the angels have a sense of humor. All the disciples are standing there gawking up at the clouds. Jesus is gone and they're all there with their mouths open and gawking. And the angels say, walk up and say, what are you staring at? He'll be back. And then the scene changes and Jesus enters in to the heavenly room in Revelation chapter 5. And all rise the noise, the cacophony of music and sound. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. You can almost hear the, the timber in the temple in heaven shaking and rattling, and His Father Himself rising from the throne and handing Him the scepter of righteousness and saying, sit at My right hand. But one major event in Jesus' life there's silence, no angels, no father. The only sound he heard was the screams of his own broken body and those who mocked him. No heavenly host. On the cross, he bore your sin and mine. He became the sin offering to God that covers and atones for all of our sin. Those of us here in this room today who have owned Him as our own. He was bereft of any angel help on that day. Not that they didn't want to. Not that they couldn't have rescued Him. In fact, His mocker said, call, call them and see if they'll come. And He didn't call. Why? 
so that you would never have to spend one day of your lives, none of us, in doubt that God loves you and has dispatched all of heaven to support you all your life till the day you die and after. Now that's something to believe. Will you trust Him? Will you believe it? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your kindness and goodness to us. Uh, thank you for tearing the, uh, the walls of heaven apart to come down and minister to your people. And we ask most heartily, Father, in Jesus' name, that you would help us, save us, and have mercy on us. Without you, we would have been utterly lost and many, many here, Father, suffering in ways that only you know. Please, I ask, reach out and touch them this morning on this Palm Sunday. Let the King of glory enter into their lives and bring refuge and safety and assurance. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.